0: Well, again, welcome, one and all. Uh, remind you as well that we have an evening service where we look into the Word of God. We're looking into the Gospel of Mark. So if you are around this evening want to come and informally have a time to learn together, we invite you there. But for this morning, we are looking now at uh, a new series in the book of Colossians. If you have your Bibles, turn to the New Testament uh, and the book of Colossians, one of Paul's letters and one of my wife's favorite books. So yeah, I was influenced, but we're going we're gonna to look through that. It's a great book. So as we begin this series, looking into the book of Colossians, uh, I want you to see it as, as much as you can. It's a personal letter from the Apostle Paul. He wrote this while he was in prison in Rome. And this letter of Colossians is one of several prison epistles they're known as, uh, along with Philippians, Ephesians, and Philemon. And in that context, in prison, Paul was permitted to have visitors, but he was also uh, permitted to have parchment to write some of these letters. What do you do with your time when you're in jail? (laughs) Well, sometimes you write personal letters. And although he was hindered from being with churches and believers, Paul was not hindered from remembering and being personal with these people who meant so much to them, to him. You know, think about it. There really is something even more special about receiving a personal letter from someone you know. You know that person is facing some very constraining circumstances that hinders them from being with you. You get a personal letter because they are limited by things like the pandemic. (laughs) I can't see you. I can't be with you. I can't really communicate the way I want there's something about that. When you, we don't do enough of this, I would argue. We don't do enough personal handwriting anymore. It's all email, isn't it? <clears throat> it's all texting. That's okay. But there's something really special, isn't it? When you get a letter from someone you knew took the, took the time, they want to write personally to you. As I mentioned to you in the past here, I still have a collection of letters that my father wrote to my mother. And what made those precious... And I'm not being melodramatic here. He literally wrote many of these letters in a foxhole while close by some of his fellow soldiers were dying. Death was real. My father could have died any time. But he was writing, writing in rain-soaked, tarped foxholes, writing letters to my mother. They were pretty precious, weren't they? They were worth reading. And so that meant a lot. Or or like some letters I still remember having received uh, from a member of my church when I first served in, a woman who was losing her capability because of MS. She would write to me to tell me specific things and to tell me how she was praying for me. They were very personal and very meaningful to me. I loved to hold on to those and they were worth reading more than once, weren't they? Friends, that's, that really is what the Bible should mean to us increasingly. This is a precious book. It's a personal book that should mean more and more to us. So let's look at the, the book of Colossians. These first, um, well, I just want to read the first eight verses. I said verses 1 through 14, but we're going to just focus on the first eight verses. So let me read those and give us the context as well. Here now, God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit This letter, many things to consider here, but I would suggest to you, this letter, like the whole of the Word of God, is a letter worth reading many times over. Don't just read it and say, okay, I read it, that's good, next. This is a letter, a personal letter that is designed to be read more than once. Giving you a context here of this book, this letter that Paul has written it was written around 61 AD, written from prison in response, as you saw, to the report from Epaphras, Epaphras, and it was written to a small and fledgling group of believers in Colossae. These believers mostly consisted of Gentiles. There were several thousand Jews living in the city, but in this particular church it was primarily non-jews or gentiles that made up that fellowship now again appreciate the fact that the city of colossae it's about 100 miles east of ephesus another church that's where we get ephesians from another place where paul planted a church it was in the region known as asia minor and and thro- though it was a small city it really had a cosmopolitan feel or makeup This city, and it's important for us to be aware of as we move into this book, this city um, was a significant place of diversity, of culture, and of religion. There were all kinds of views, all kinds of understandings of life. Most biblical scholars believe that Paul himself never visited Colossae, but he indirectly planted the church through his fellow servant, Epaphras. That's why that name, that person so important. It, it's believed that Epaphras was converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus and was trained by Paul and then sent out by Paul. Epaphras, I want you to go to Colossae. Call out some brothers and sisters. Plant a church there. So in this church and these people, you can see they have a special place in Paul's heart because of the connection But we also see they have a special place because of their love for Christ and how their lives showed it. Epaphras was telling Paul, Paul, I have to tell you what I saw and what's been going on in this church. The gospel has gotten a hold of people's lives. They are loving each other. They are bringing the truth of Christ to bear in how they live You know, one of the underlying purposes of Paul, we'll see, one of the underlying purposes of Paul for writing this personal letter, in addition to encouraging them, was to address some false teaching that had crept into the church. That teaching was a subtle and persistent undermining of the person and work of Christ. Yes, Jesus is good, but there's more. (laughs) That's undermining the sufficiency of Jesus. The Christian faith is ultimately, ultimately about Christ and Christ alone. Paul was in prison and would gladly die for that reason. There is no other way to understand life and God apart from Jesus Christ It's that exclusive. It's that narrow. And he would say that same theme to Timothy when he wrote to Timothy. Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I'm in prison, not because I'm a religious person, but because I believe Jesus Christ is the only way to understand Almighty God. For the purpose of time and, and laying a, a foundation, we are going to just look at these first eight verses. We're, not going, to, we're going to see later in, in our studies some of the false teaching and how it affected these believers and how it could affect you and me. But for now, I want to just focus on those first eight verses. Before he deals more specifically with the issues of biblical doctrine and false teaching, I want you to see that Paul right up front he is affirming and encouraging believers. Before I talk to you about the things I'm really worried about, can I just tell you how much I love you, how much I thank God for what I see him doing in your life? Doesn't that make you want to listen? <laughs> Rather than, how do you as parents start off? You ever do that again? <laughs> you? No, wait a minute. My son, I love you. Why did you do that? Let's talk about this. Once again, like like so many of his letters, he begins, did you see that? He begins by reminding them of who he is and why he lives. He's not laying out his own resume, is he, and trying to convince them to listen to him. What he is saying right up front, it's actually a statement of his unashamed dependence on the Lord God. And don't gloss over this. It's about his identity. He wants them to know, first and foremost, this is who I am. And his identity, first and foremost, is in Christ. Look again at that opening verse. Don't gloss over. What does Paul say? Paul, he's telling you who the author is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, an apostle. A follower of Jesus Christ only, only by the will of God. This wasn't something I decided I'm going to be religious and be a Christian. I'm going to look good. No, God got a hold of my life. It was the will of God. It was not my will first and foremost. It was God's will who called me. Friends, it is good to pause even now and ask that question, or let me ask that question. Who are you? Who are you? And don't be like me by saying, I'm a minister of the gospel, and I do all these wonderful things, and I'm, I'm really active here, and I do. Who are you? <laughs> I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what I want to know most about you. I want to know all as much as I can about you, but here's what I really want to know. <laughs> Who are you? Are you in Christ Jesus? Is he your identity? Paul would make sure that everyone who spent any time with him would quickly understand his true identity. He wanted people to know he wasn't serving a cause or some wonderful movement. He had a living identity with Jesus. I don't think that's more clearly stated than in his letter to Galatians to the Galatian Christians when he said in Galatians 2.20, Do you, you know this, but here again, listen to what he says. This is who I am. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I am not a representative of the greatest cause in the world. I, am, I have no identity apart from the living Jesus in me it's that personal it's that important so i have to pause and say again to all of us my fellow christians we cannot we cannot go on in any teaching or living our lives as christians unless we see the absolute critical necessity of having that same understanding. Your union with Christ is not a concept. Something to think about. It is reality. Is Jesus in you or not? Are you in Christ or not? You can't make it happen. But by the will of God. By the will of God I can say I am a Christian because of God. And what he's done in my. He is in me. I can't imagine my life without him. Even when I try. He is that much a part of my life. And that's what Paul wanted these believers to know. But I think what I want us to see here, that the more, the more we are established in our identity, we reflect that the same way Paul does. The more you and I understand our true identity in Christ, we're going to start responding the way Paul does. He now spends the rest of this passage in encouraging the believers in their identity. He's not jumping into corrective doctrinal problems. He is jumping into affirming what we have in common first and foremost. And he does this in several ways, but let me just highlight two ways that I think he does it pretty richly and clearly in this passage. One is to remind them of who they really are, Did you see that? He gives followers of Jesus two rich adjectives in verse 2. He calls them saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about it. He doesn't see them as helpful servants to make him successful. He first and foremost sees them as fellow Christians who are holy and fellow pilgrims. Brothers and sisters, not based on my interpretation, but based on the word of God. If you confess Jesus, you are holy. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. <laughs> not because of you, but because of Christ. You are holy. And You are a pilgrim trying to get to know Jesus better and better. That's how I must see you. That's how you must see me. Don't look at me in my title or my role. Don't let me do that to you. Don't let me primarily look at you as your functional identity. Who are you? You are holy. You are a follower of Jesus. Paul wanted us to know that. Because think about it. Left to ourselves, we can easily get discouraged, can't we? and we can think those titles of of holy and 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 pilgrim really they don't apply to me if i'm honest because we can quickly feel alone and unworthy of our calling why because of my failures if i'm honest i'm a mess i'm not trusting god the way i should i'm not following him like i should so i can't be holy or or a good pilgrim i still remember years ago this is early on in my ministry with Youth for Christ when I just graduated from college and I spent time in this ministry. And I remember um, a guy giving me advice that had a lifelong impact. I was in it for several years and I was feeling more and more like a failure because I was not successful the way I thought I was supposed to be. And I'm not doing everything I was supposed to do. And it was just more and more obvious to me, Jerry, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) Go flip burgers, go do anything else because... You're not making it here. Just forget it. And I I was ready to just walk out and quit. And uh, this guy pulled me aside. And I thought I should just leave. And he pulled me aside. And with a loving rebuke, he said, McFarlane. And again, we had a good enough relationship. He would almost grab my lapel. And he would treat me as kind of a, a child. He was an older brother, but he was a regional director. And he pulled me aside. He said, McFarlane, God has not called you. To be successful. He's called you to be faithful. You be as obsessed about being faithful. He'll take care of your success. Now, that didn't fix me immediately, but I'll never forget that. It had a sealing moment in my soul. God, don't let me be so obsessed with success that when I don't succeed, I give up. Let me be obsessed with faithfulness. Of trusting in you, of getting to know you better, and believing what you say. So you see that, that Paul was really encouraging them about their identity. But the second way is a similar way, but it's equally important. He encourages them specifically, doesn't he? He just, in this beginning, was a general encouragement of who they are, but now he's being specific. It was interesting, recently I, I talked to a, a seminary student online and she learned early in life, she said, from her pastor that when you want to encourage someone, be sure to be specific. <laughs> this pastor referred to this his own challenges sometimes when, when people would respond to a sermon that he preached by saying something like, great sermon, really wonderful thoughts. And he found himself thinking, I appreciate that, but what specifically meant something to you? <laughs> what, what, how did God particularly use this? And she said that was helpful when she tries to encourage people in her counseling. She tries to be very specific. Here, Paul is pretty specific. Looking at verses three and four, when he says he and Timothy, he and Timothy prayed for them with thanksgiving. And in particular, they were thankful for their faith in Jesus and their love for each other. Again, they didn't have some generic thing, we're grateful that you love Jesus. No, we're grateful that you really love Christ and you love each other. We've heard specific things about that. The way they were daily living was a confirmation of what had taken place in their hearts You know, there is really no greater, there really is no greater joy for any of us, think about it, than to hear of God's children walking in the truth and proving that by how they love one another. Doesn't that do your soul good? When you see Christians really working at it and focusing on the Lord and actually loving each other, it does something to your soul, friends. It makes you want to take Jesus a little more seriously. But do you see, do you see how Paul continues this opening section of encouragement by expanding further their understanding? He wants to get them excited about what God is doing. And he does this by reminding them in verses 5 and 6 of the foundation and the effect of the gospel. The good news of truth, of the truth of the gospel is that Jesus the Savior has come and lived, died for you, rose again, and even now is praying for you. Paul wants them to see this is what life is about. But friends, this doesn't make sense that you or me or give us hope unless, like Paul says in verse 5, unless you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel. Unless the Spirit of God has touched you and made you see, I I need this Jesus. (laughs) Unless the Spirit of God has touched your heart, shown you your need, and his love for you in Christ, it doesn't doesn't make sense. Paul knew, he knew that the essence of the Christian faith is that we walk by faith, not by sight. (laughs) We trust in the promises of God. We believe in a savior we can't see, but we believe he is risen, he reigns above, he is coming again. Sounds a little bit like the Apostles' Creed, doesn't it? Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven. Wait, do you understand what that means? What a powerful thing to say, I believe in the God who is invisible. A God of history who has done something. A savior who died on a cross. I wasn't there, but I believe it. Why? Because of the spirit of God. I've said this many times from this pulpit, and I'll continue to say it, that the Christian faith is unashamedly a supernatural faith. This does not mean it's irrational. If anything, the Christian faith is the most rational of all systems of thinking. Why? Because it starts not with man, but with God. You don't assume God in life, you don't understand life. You are not rational. (laughs) Because our God is the beginning of all things. And if you know him, you have a foundation of life. But let's look further again at how Paul wants them to see and even further fuller identity these believers along with he and timothy they're part of a worldwide network of the church of christ did you see just a little bit of what he said and how powerful that is as he reminds them in verse six this good news has not only come to them it is having an impact around the world it is bearing fruit You understand what that means? Paul is saying, look, that means people are being converted to Jesus and living faithful and loving lives, and the world is taking notice. It's about the grace of God changing lives. You know, it's also all too easy, isn't it? And it's even understandable in our day and age to believe that we are losing the battle for the gospel. Doesn't it feel like that? What is going on in our country? What's going on in our world? This is it. This is the beginning of the end. I can tell you, I'm not a prophet, but here it comes. We get so consumed by the negatives. And sometimes justly so. But friends, listen. Just look at the erosion of our own country. But the American church... Breaks my heart as a pastor. Almost every week you hear something about a Christian leader who's fallen. I love Jesus, but I did something immoral. I can no longer follow Christ the way I should. Then look even closer. Look at the statistics of divorce and broken relationships and young people saying goodbye to faith in Christ. I don't need this anymore. Why aren't we as consumed by that? as we are by who's getting elected in this country. I care, but I care more about the church of Christ. Where is Jesus in the lives of the church? Why are we not holy and living as pilgrims? Why are we saying enough, I'm done? No. Let's be as burdened for the holiness of Jesus and his church as we are for our land. Oh, that's not encouraging, is it? to see how messed up we are as a country and as a church. But Paul reminds us, Paul reminds us, the church that is headed and led by the risen Christ is alive and well. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I don't care how dark it gets but Paul reminds us of that but look no further friends for an example look no further than the church in China if you're not aware of it uh, I hear a lot from our students and people that I know are working there do you know that that underground church that's in a land that is oppressed for cent- for decades centuries against the christian faith is one of the largest churches in the world the underground church <laughs> is alive and well. People are being converted in a land that is against the gospel. Doesn't that do your soul good? Doesn't that do something to know? Or listen to stories, if you've not, look at the stories among even the Muslim population. The gospel is penetrating what was to believed to be the impenetrable places and hearts. Muslims are being converted to Jesus Oh, that does the heart good to hear. That's encouraging. Paul is saying, my brothers and sisters, I'm in jail. I'm in prison. I might die. But praise be to God, the church is alive. Lives are being changed. But don't lose sight of the fact. At the end of even this brief passage in verse 8, do you see that Paul is practicing what he preaches. He was personally affected by the personal news he received from Epaphras. In that news, Epaphras says this to Paul. Well, Paul says this about what Epaphras told him. He said, he has made known to us your love in the spirit. Paul didn't just say your love for each other, but moved by the spirit of God. Paul is saying your love in the spirit of Jesus. Paul himself was personally encouraged. And I believe that that news that he heard was part of the Holy Spirit's inspiring Paul to write this personal letter to the brothers and sisters at Colossae. We believe this is the word of God directed by the spirit of God. Every word we read here is from the mouth of God using the men he's used to write this. The spirit of God Told Paul, write this down, and write this, Paul, that you were you were encouraged by the love you heard about people in the spirit of my son. Not just human love, the spirit of God. And as we'll see next week, this was part of the process by which he was going to get even more personal before he got into the issues of doctrine that concerned him. It is so important for us to see this. This is not just an objective textbook of corrective behavior modification. This is Paul appealing first and foremost to brothers and sisters in Christ, how much he loves them, how much we have in common. And now I want to, I want to lovingly remind you of the danger of what you're hearing so that we make sure the purity of Jesus is what we're all about. So as I mentioned, uh, this in the beginning, this, this book we call the Bible, this book should be seen as a personal letter from God to you and me. Yes, at the same time, some of the books in this compilation we call God's Word, are, they're more personal than others, but the whole book is a personal r- written recording for you from God. And these books need to be read often. Hear me, the purpose is to get more and more aware of who our God is and what he has done for us in Christ. But more than that, more than that, his word is designed to actually speak to us. You got ears to hear? He wants to talk to you. He wants to speak to you personally. Why? Because God wants to To get really, really personal with us. Why? Because He really, He really loves us. He wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. He'll never, God will never be satisfied with just a general conceptual understanding of His Son. No. He wants us to have a living knowledge of his living presence. God is not in the business of just manufacturing image-driven people. I want people who know me, and I'll never be satisfied. I love you too much. I want to get personal with you, really personal. Why? Because I really love you. I sent my son to die for you. I want you to find great rest and comfort in that. Oh, brothers and sisters, we we need to be a church where the people of God who are so alive with his personal love that they actually are finding ways to encourage others in their life as well. Oh, may God make us a people of the word who live out the word personally as we point others to Jesus. And may Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful that you are personal. Yes, you are beyond full comprehension. You are great and far above. But you have declared you are personal. And you've proven that by personally giving us Jesus. And to know him is to know you. God, make us a people who too are never satisfied. We want to know our God better and better. And let the people and brothers and sisters here at Third Reform, let us be people alive in Jesus and alive with each other, that we encourage each other to keep our eyes on him in this world. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.